So take a look in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. And this is what the Word of God says. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angel to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of, of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but... But if someone goes to them from the dead, they, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Everybody loves a story. This story doesn't have a happy ending. And if you read this story and find yourself shocked... That was Jesus' intent. He doesn't have any concern about being diplomatic. That's not how Jesus rolls. Jesus' example is one that reminds us that truth is not judged based on how it makes people feel. Truth is truth. And this is teaching with an edge on a subject that warrants it to people who need to hear it. And it's disturbing to read. You should find yourself disturbed as you read this because as you see, The focus on this story is on who? It's on the man in hell. It's on the misery of the man in hell. In fact, of all the descriptions of hell in the Bible, what we just read is by far the most vivid. It's the most detailed, and it's spoken by the one who speaks more about hell than any other person in the Bible, and that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's disturbing to read. There's a very vivid picture painted there of of torment and anguish and suffering and a desire to be for, for relief, but then being told no. A desire for other people to hear this so they don't receive that same torment because but it just doesn't happen. It's not a happy story. You don't read this and go, Oh, good, she found her coin. Oh, awesome, the son came home. This is meant to leave us feeling like we were just punched in the gut. Jesus is trying to rattle his audience because, as it says in your outline of the first point, it may seem elementary, but hell is real. 
And that may seem like, really? That's, that, you're going to kick it off that way? Yes, hell is real. We live in a day and age where even within supposedly evangelical circles, people are embarrassed by, apologize for, downplay, or outright deny the reality of hell. So we do well to look at this parable and be reminded of the fact that hell is real. Hell is a real place. It's a real place that takes in people every single day. Talking about hell is a real party foul if your goal is to make sure the gospel always sounds cheerful to lost people. It gets in the way of people who peddle Christianity as the religion that makes everybody feel good about themselves. It's an embarrassment to Christians who want Christianity to fit into secular humanism or universal goodwill or just, in general, broad-minded tolerance. But Jesus was speaking to religious people who would not change. Religious people who had no love for God in their heart. Religious people who had this outward view of piety and would practice things that looked religious, but inside did not have a love for God. In fact, the most detailed descriptions of hell appear in the four Gospels, and they all come from Jesus. Matthew 25, verses 41 and 46 says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46 says, And these will go away into eternal punishment. Mark 9 and verse 48, quoting from the Old Testament, says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Hell is a place of eternal punishment. Eternal punishment. There is no end. There's no way to look at this and say, at least the person is out of their misery because eventually they die because this is the second death. And there is no end. It's eternal punishment. But more than that, it's eternal conscious punishment punishment. Eternal conscious punishment. If you look back at the parable we just read, in verse 23, we're told that this man lifted up his eyes. He lifted up his eyes. He was able to be aware of what was going on. He hasn't fallen into some category of life where now he's, he's not in heaven, but he's not really aware of what's going on. He's really just alone. He lifts up his eyes and he's crying out for relief. And hell is a place where there is no relief whatsoever. Verse 25 says, he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And hell is a place that is eternally separated from heaven. You quite frankly can't get there from here. Verse 26, besides all this, between us and you, this is Abraham speaking back to him, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. In the book of Revelation, chapter 14, I put this in your outline as well. We read, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Hell is real. Hell is real. And Pastor John MacArthur commenting on this says this. In this sobering story, Jesus illustrates what it's like to be in hell. The parable makes it clear that this is an agonizing existence full of regret, anguish, and relentless burning torment with full consciousness and without hope forever and ever. There is, there is no possibility of escape and no rest. Not one 
fingertips drop of relief will ever ease the suffering or diminish the pain of a soul eternally tormented in hell. It's a horrific, heartbreaking picture of absolute damnation. How do you respond to this truth? What about you? How do you respond to teaching about hell? It's kind of a downer, right? Is it just something like, wow, he's really talking about hell? Kind of uncomfortable. I want to go to lunch. What does the truth of God's word in this area do to you in your mind and in your heart? Does it, does it frighten you? Does it offend you? Do you find it, it moves you closer to your Lord and Savior? Do you find that it pushes you away? Why do you think that is? What, what about you? Because it's in the text. This isn't me. Hopefully you see that this isn't me like getting on a hobby horse like, oh, I get to preach about hell. Woo! And, 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 and you should, I don't like it. I don't like it. This is not something I'm excited about. I get to preach on a topic that's kind of hard and really frightening and boom, really bold. I, I don't like it. It's in the text. It's in the parable. Jesus told a whole parable about this. And the focus of the parable is the man that is in hell, the man that is suffering. What comes to your mind? And what could possibly be helpful for us to look at this as a Christian today? Why talk about this if it's like, okay, this is not like, are you trying to like scare us into heaven? Like we're, we're you know, vast majority of us, we're, we're saved. Thanks. We know. Thank you, Jesus. Yay. Why talk about this today? Why pick this parable? Of all the parables, why pick this one? Well, it reminds me of a story of something that happened to me when I was uh, a lot younger. I think I was six or seven years old, and um, my parents had recently divorced, and mom wanted to take us on a trip to visit some family up in Massachusetts, which would be probably about, I think it's about a four-hour drive from where my mom was, maybe three, three and a half hours, somewhere between three and four hours, um, just outside of Boston. And um, mom... Uh, single mom had never done a trip like that with kids without a husband. She was very intimidated by that. So she decided that instead of driving, we would take the train. We would take Amtrak. So we'd get on a Penn Station and just ride it up north, and my aunt would pick us up. We'd spend a week there and then ride the train back. I smile because it's kind of funny because it, it shows you're from the city when driving intimidates you, but hailing a cab with two children and getting on a subway train and then getting on Amtrak seems like the easier option. But anyway, that's just... That's just how we rolled. So mom said, let's do that. So we did that. We had a, a, a wonderful time. I really got a kick out of riding the train and all that stuff. And really looked forward to riding the train back. And then when we got back at Penn Station, um, I'm, I think I was seven, which puts my sister at four. Um, and then there's my mom. So I'm carrying what little luggage I can carry. My sister's probably carrying nothing. And, and, and my mom is carrying the rest. And we're walking off the train. There's a gap between the train and the platform, which I did not mind. And as I walk, my mom talks to me about, she says, she just remembers, mom's not terribly tall, so she's, she's a towering 4'11", and she's carrying the stuff, and she says she just saw my head just go, 
just fall down. And I fell down in the gap. I don't remember actually fall. I, actually, I remember this instance, but I don't remember falling. I just remember a conductor bending down, just kind of scrunching up his face, and he lifted me, and I was on by one arm. So I didn't have two arms. I didn't fall like that. I'd kind of fallen and just caught myself by my arm. <clears throat> and he lifted me up and, and put me on the platform safely. And I had to scrape my leg or something, but I was, I, I was fine. And I remember my, my mom screaming. You know when your mom screams and it's a combination of absolute panic and I'm going to kill him. <laughs> so it was like, oh my gosh, my son's going to die and if he makes it, I'm going to kill him. That, that, that's, it was that, that tone of voice that I'm not sure what would be worse, falling underneath this train or seeing mom afterwards. <laughs> but anyway, that's fine. So I... I the conductor pulls me up. We go upstairs. Mom talks to me in some strong words, letting me know about how I need to be careful and all this other stuff. Because I wasn't. I was looking around. Oh, and I just fell. Years later, years later, I'm at Penn Station for whatever, just to take a train somewhere else. I don't know. And um, I noticed something. Are you familiar with the third rail? What I'm, when I say third rail, you know what I mean? Okay. In Penn Station, the third rail on most of the tracks uh, is on the platform side. Seven hundred and fifty volts. Do you see how that detail changes my perspective of the once funny story about? Oh, silly little Peter fell down the gap. Do you you see? Do you see how finding out a little bit of a detail in a story can change your perspective and give you a brand new appreciation for that conductor and for God acting in such a way at that time? Because it wasn't just, oh, I would have gotten dirty or I would have, it was an inconvenience. Now it's like, wow, I wonder how close my little feet came to 750 volts of electricity. Luke 16, as we look at that parable, which we're going to walk through once again together, is a reminder to us who have been saved of a detailed description of what we've been saved from and gives us cause to rejoice. It gives us cause to be very, very, very thankful and cause to look up to God and say, wow, Thank you for saving me. Hallelujah. What a savior. Hallelujah. What a friend. Jesus is my savior. He saved me from what, from from just this little, little glimpse of what I get that this man is going through. I'm not going to go through that because of what Jesus Christ has done in my life. We look back on this, not because we love drama. We look back on this, not just because it's cool to be bold about things. We look back on this because Jesus would have us remember, wow, This is what we were saved from. This is what we're not going to experience because of the mercy and grace of God. But now let's look back at the parable and let's walk through together and let's look at some uh, some things that we can notice from this parable as we continue looking at it today. So in verse 19, Luke chapter 16, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
I want you to see what Jesus is setting up here side by side, right? This side by side comparison of complete opposites, complete opposites, as far left in one direction and as far right in the other direction, as far black as we can go to as far white as we can go, like complete opposites. We have the rich man, verse 19, clothed in fine linen and clothed in fine linen and not only fine linen, but but purple. So this was, we don't have time to get into it, but this was a sign of real unbelievable wealth. Okay. Now look at verse 20. We have a poor man who is covered in sores. Okay. Clothed in fine linen, covered in sores. Later on, we read that the dogs would come by and lick his sores. So it's not completely out of the question that the picture Jesus is trying to paint to us is that he was either naked or wearing very little clothing. How would the dogs lick the sores? So here's a man who is clothed in fine linen, filthy rich. And here's a man who is unbelievably poor and covered in sores. Look at verse 19 again. Here's a man who feasted sumptuously and daily. So every day this man ate and ate well. And he ate food that was expensive and food that was rich and everything that it tasted unbelievable. He ate very, very well. Now look at verse 20. Here's the poor man, Lazarus, who's longing for crumbs from the dog. So think through this. Where is he laid? He's laid what? At the gate, right? It says he's longing for crumbs from the table, but the table's not at the gate. So his hope of getting food is that someone or perhaps a dog would be eating scraps from the table and would bring out scraps and perhaps crumbs would fall from their clothing because he's not at the table, right? He's at the gate. So here's a man who just, boom, at any, the rich man, just whenever he wanted to, he could eat whatever he wanted. He feasted sumptuously every day. The other side, we have this poor man who's, who has been laid at the outside of the gate. Not he's laying, it's a passive, so somebody laid him there. He has been laid there at the gate, and he's hoping to get just crumbs from the table, but he's not at the table, so he's hoping somebody might, maybe, drag some crumbs out from the table. Here's a man who has everything that he needs, and here's a man who has nothing that he needs. Here's a man who could just snap his fingers and get it, and here's a man who's just looking for a break. Here's a man who's probably waited on hand and foot. Here's a man who has dogs licking his wounds. Here's a man who is filthy rich, and here's a man who is just filthy. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, some people have wondered if this is actually a parable. Sometimes the Bible says, and Jesus told them a parable. This doesn't say that. But when we look at things and we compare it with the rest of Scripture, we know it's a parable because we know from elsewhere in Scripture that you can't, you, you, you can't see heaven from hell. You can't see hell from heaven. We know that hell is described as utter darkness, so he's not able to see. So, so he's trying to paint a picture of what the experience would be like. So therefore, this, is, this is, actually is a parable. And here Jesus says that it's, it's the rich man who, who we don't know his name, the rich man who is buried and is in Hades, he lifts up his eyes and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. 
and send Lazarus. He just wants a little bit of relief. He doesn't try to justify himself. He doesn't say, I really shouldn't be in here. He is convinced of that the judgment that he's received is right. All he wants is just a little, what does he want? He wants, his, he wants Lazarus, the, the, the poor man, Lazarus the beggar, just to dip, just to dip his finger in water and just a drop, just, just, just a drop on his tongue would give him just a little bit of relief from the torment and the anguish and the agony that he was in. But Abraham, verse 25, said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received the good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Now you have to understand that the Pharisees would have been tracking along right up until Jesus said, and then they died and the rich man went to Hades and the poor man named Lazarus went up to heaven. They would have been like, okay, hey, wait, what? Because the Pharisees would have thought that the beggar was under God's judgment and that the rich man was receiving favor from the Lord. The Pharisees would have thought that the poor man named Lazarus, for whatever reason, he, we'll look at that later, but for whatever reason, Jesus gave him a name but didn't give the rich man a name. So they would have thought that Lazarus right there was under God's judgment because of the condition of his body, because he couldn't even have any food. And this man, he's got it going on, so God must be smiling upon him. So to hear that the opposite is true, that all of a sudden it's the rich man that goes to hell and the poor man goes to heaven, would have shocked the Pharisees. And that's what is shocking in the story to them. It's not the fact that they're talking about the eternal anguish in hell. It's the fact of who is where. Do, do, do you see that? The fact that the, the, the poor man went to heaven and the rich man would actually go to hell. But when you look over in Luke chapter 16, verse 25, Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, meaning there's no way, there's, there, there's, 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 there's no way in hell you can get to heaven from here. Literally, there's no way to get there from here. You, you cannot get from hell to heaven from here. The, the, the chasm is great. The spa, the, the, it's a vast, vast space. You, there's no way. It's too late. There's no turning back. And Jesus' hearers would have been astonished that the rich man who appeared to have it all together is the one who ends up in hell. And just as astonishing is the fact that the poor man who appeared to be under the judgment of God receives eternal life. We're reminded of the verse in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter, enter by it are many. And this is the main point of the parable. It's point number three in your outline. Hell will be full of people who never expected to be there. That's the point Jesus is trying to make. There's other points of application we can and will draw from it. But the point that Jesus is trying to make, into, make to his hearers is that hell will be full of people who never expected to be there. Full of people who live a life not in active conscious rebellion against God, but who go to hell nonetheless because they haven't bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. People who live normal lives each and every day, just doing their best, trying to be the best person, the best worker, the best mom, the best daughter, the best dad that they can be, but who still at the end go to hell for all of eternity because they don't know and don't love the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And Matthew 7 verse 13 says that, the, 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 that the, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The vast majority of well-intended, listen, the vast majority of well-intended religious people will be on a wide road. Well-intended. So just lay aside the people who are just outwardly rebellious. That's kind of obvious. You're like, yeah, they're going to hell in a handbasket. We know. And it's not that we don't care about that, but that's like obvious. You look at that, you're like, duh. We're talking about people who are well-intended. I'm sure people come to your mind right now, people who are well-intended either in their religious practices or just in their life practices, who just want to do what is right, but don't have a love for Jesus. This parable is sobering, and it serves to remind us that the road is broad and wide that leads to destruction. Moreover, heaven is not going to be full of people who have been convinced by a sign or, 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 or a miracle. Because if you look at verse 27, when he realizes he's not going to get just a drop of water, he said, okay, let's shift focuses. I've got brothers who need to know this place is not where you want to be. So can you do me a favor? Can you, can you send Lazarus? They'll recognize him. He's the beggar who always laid up my door. Send Lazarus to tell them this is not where you want to be. To tell them to repent. To tell them to call on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. To tell them to believe in God. To tell them to please him. And Abraham's response in verse 29 is this. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Verse 30, he said, no, 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 Father Abraham. If someone goes, so Father Abraham, right? This is a fellow Jew. The Pharisees pick up on that. Father Abraham, Abraham calls him child. Father, child. No, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent, right? Common sense is that they may not have believed what they heard that was read to them. They may not have believed what was heard that was preached to them. But a dead man who shows up is probably going to get their attention, Right? Someone's going to prop, someone that's going to get someone's attention. Surely, if that dead person shows up, people are going to believe. But Abraham says this in verse 31 If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, meaning if they don't hear what? The, the word of God, the word of God that they had access to. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Keep your finger in Luke chapter 16 and turn over to John chapter 11. So in John chapter 11, we read of the miracle of Jesus Christ raising Lazarus from the dead. The real Lazarus, not, a, not, a, not one in a parable, but raising Lazarus from the dead. And take a look at verse 53. Uh, Take a look at verse 50. Let's start in verse... Sorry, I like context. Let's start in verse 47. John 11, verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Okay, so I don't hear, wow, this is awesome, the chief priests and Pharisees said. A man who was dead is now living. Let us celebrate. That's not, let us believe in him. Let's run towards him and be like him. No, 
Verse 46, what are we going to do with this guy? He's raising the dead. This is really awkward. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. We wouldn't want that. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, verse 49, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Verse 53. So from that day on, they what? Made plans to put them to death. So the end result, I'm sure some people were encouraged by Lazarus being raised from the dead. But the Pharisees, the people who were living a life of just lifeless, dead religion, just this outward appearance of piety, they weren't moved. They said, you know what we should do? From now on, we should put them, to de- put them to death. So let's kill Jesus and let's kill Lazarus again. That's the result of them seeing this miracle. Not, oh, oh my, we need to follow Jesus. So what Abraham is saying in this parable is right. If they don't believe the word of God, they're not all of a sudden going to believe a sign. And perhaps you remember from earlier in the year when we were talking about stop wishing, we need to stop wishing we had something better than the Word of God. Do you, do you remember us focusing on that in our sermon series? Stop wishing we had something better than the Word of God to convince people because signs don't convince people. Signs don't convince people. If people's hearts are not going to be bent towards God, it's the Word of God that's going to change them, not a sign. And here is very proof of that. And we need to remember that the greatest tool for reaching an unbeliever isn't a miracle, it isn't a sign or some new ministry philosophy. It's us living our lives out loud, proclaiming and obeying the word of God in our everyday life. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, it's not in your outline, but he says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the uh, uh, the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not uh, not in plausible words for wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The gospel is of first importance. And to this day, the most effective tool for reaching people are people like you and like me, who live lives out loud, living lives that are pleasing to God in the presence of unbelievers, looking for opportunities to talk to people about important things of God, that does more than any miracle, than any sign that we could ever imagine. And that's the other thing that we look at. We don't only see in this parable the the torment and the anguish of the person in hell, but we look at the fact that we're directed back to the word of God, now, when that person in hell is like, just send a miracle. Send, they, they don't want to come here. Send, make, give them a sign. Send Lazarus over there. The response is, no. They have what they need. They have the word of God. If they're not going to believe the word, they're not going to believe the sign which points to the word. It's a great reminder of the sufficiency of the word. What about you? Do you really believe that this word at work in someone's life can convince them of their need for Jesus, can give them a love for Jesus, can save them? The word of God. Do you believe that the gospel can do that? 
Or do you doubt the sufficiency of Scripture to draw someone to faith? I, I, don't, know what, I don't know what your experience has been. Maybe you're like, I've, I've tried this many times. I try to present people with the, the Word and it just doesn't work. So maybe you're tempted to think, this thing doesn't work. This needs to be, needs to be delegated to, to or, or relegated to people who, who preach. This needs to be relegated to people who do this, you know, vocationally. Or this needs, to be, uh, this needs to be done by somebody who has training. Or do you believe that there's power in the word of God? Because that's a major key point, friends, at the end of this parable. Don't look for a sign. Jesus says it's a wicked and an adulterous generation that seeks a sign. That ev- we have everything that we need for life and godliness contained within the word of God and everything that people need to hear, all the hope that they need, all the help that they need can be found within God's holy word. What role has the word of God played in your own journey to faith? What role has God's word played in, in, in your life? Are you someone who has known it from, your, from, from the days that you were as a little, little child and you say, yeah, I've... This, the role this has played in my life is I have never known a day not knowing the word of God. As long as I can remember, my parents have read the word to me and I grew up knowing it. And one day the Lord quickened me and I, get, I, I became a, a, a Christian. I became a follower of Jesus. That it wasn't just my parents' faith. It, it was my faith. Now, I love the Lord. It wasn't just mom and dad's thing. But, but now I love Jesus. But yes, my, my whole life has been not easy. But it's just been awesome that this has been a part of my life from as far as I can as far as I can remember. Or maybe you're the person who has recently picked up a Bible and you really don't know your way around it or why the pages have to be so thin or, 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 or just how to find your way from one book to another and, and, and it's brand new, but it's working in your life. You could see change happening. You, you read things that resonate with you. You say, that's, I can, that's, that's me. I can relate to that. Or you read things that, that inspire you. Maybe the reality of hell inspires you to go and talk to someone or to, to give to missions, to, 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 to become more involved in evangelism in some way, shape, or form, realizing that everyone you meet today, everyone in this room, every single human being you ever see is either like the rich man or like the poor man. Everyone, there's two options. They either go up or they go down. They either go to heaven or they go to hell. Everyone spends eternity somewhere. And maybe you read this and you can't but help say, I need to get involved. I need to, I need to do something. I need to talk to my kids, talk to my neighbor. I need to pray more. I need to give more. I need to go. I need to do something because I look at this and this reminds me of what I've been saved from. And I want people to know. And I want to take to them not a sign, but I want to take to them the word of God. I want to encourage you to do something. I want to encourage you to think, but more importantly, I want you to pray that God would show you an opportunity to do something that might spark an interest in God's word for somebody in your life who's not a, not a believer. You might have an idea right now, or you might give me the big mental eye roll. You might give me a literal eye roll, you know, depends on how embarrassed you are or not. What might God call you to do that would spark an interest in the word of God for some unbeliever you know? I, I, I don't know. You might say, I can give some, I'm, I'm literally making this up off the top of my head. I can give someone a Bible. This person's always open to stuff from church, so maybe I'll buy them a Bible or I'll give them one of the, we have, we have free Bibles that you can take, you can give it to them. 
Or maybe you, invi- or you say, you know what, I've been talking to this person about church, I invite them to church. Or maybe I'll invite them to CDT and, you know, pay for them or split the cost with them or something. Something to spark an interest in the word of God. Maybe somebody says something to you that makes you think of a verse or makes you think of something that the Bible says. And instead of just thinking it, you say it. How many times does that happen? When somebody says something to you in life and you say, that reminds me of this, or you think that's actually not the case. I know God's word says this. And you sit there and you do this. Please just raise your hand and tell me if you can relate to that. So I know I'm not the only one who's convicted by that. And you don't have to be a, you know, you're not a ref, right? You don't have to like blow a whistle and, you know, cry foul and, but saying, you know what? That's, that, that's what makes me really glad this world is not all there is. Somebody talks to you about something that they heard in the news that really, really, really rattled them. Like you brought up, these are, these are hard times that we're living in. And you say, yeah, it really is. It makes me thankful for hope. Something, something to direct them towards the word of God or make them, make them think, what do you mean? And not then, you know, take out a Bible. And go, ah, I'm so glad you asked. But just something that directs them towards God's word that would give you something to build on. I, I really want to encourage you to think about and pray about what you might do to spark an interest in the word of God in somebody's life. Maybe it's, maybe it's a child in your own home. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a neighbor. The who probably isn't hard. You probably can think of the who. It's the how. But pray that God would show you that opportunity and that we would act on it. That the parable of of, of the rich man and Lazarus would be something that would drive us not just to say, hell is bad, hell is is real, which is all true, not ashamed of that, but that that would drive you then to, to, to help somebody else understand the word of God. Because the, that's where the parable ends. Where the person in hell says, if, if I, he, he's basically saying, if only I'd seen a sign, I would have believed. So maybe we'll get someone else to see a sign. He still doesn't get it. Do you notice that? It's not like in hell, now he finally gets it and woe is me. He still doesn't get it. He does not get it. Because his mind is hard. His heart is hard. And they say, they have what they need. They have the word of God. They're not going to believe it with a sign. Maybe the reality of what has happened to you in your life having been saved, having been born from above, having your, your, your heart changed, your life changed by the word of God would propel you to go and do the same for somebody else. The story I told you before, Penn Station, I'm pretty sure that was summer of 85. Um, April of 2012. I am, I took a train from Philly to New York and I'm getting off the train and it's been a while. I hadn't been, I actually hadn't been on an Amtrak train since that day. I wasn't like scared away from it. I just haven't been on one. Um, And they have these things called planes, but anyway, but I took, but you can get really cheap. Like among the East coast, you can get from, from Philly to New York in like two hours for 30 bucks. So you can't, yeah, you can't drive it from city center to city center. It's a cool thing. So I decided to do that because I had something to do in Philly, and then I wanted to go up and see mom, um, and I think speak at a retreat up there. So I took the train. I'm getting off the train. You can't make this up. 
I'm getting off the train, and behind me, and I'm, I'm, in, I'm in New York mode, so it's this. It's this. I, I'm just focused on where I need to go, and I'm just getting off the train, going to get my next train. I get off the train. I have my bag with me. And I hear a lady scream. And I see her bags all over the floor. And I see her kid in the gap. So I drop my stuff. I go over. And I lifted him up. He's crying. She's crying. I help her get her stuff together. She's alone. It's just her and him. I carry her bags. She probably thinks I'm going to steal them. I, I carry her bags. I said, come on, I'll get you up to your waiting. She had to switch trains, so she went up to the waiting area. And um, she said, thank you, thank you, thank you. She didn't, uh, she didn't speak very good English. And I prayed with her and asked her if there's something else I could do for her. She was just going to wait there for her next train. Um, and I kept looking at her, and I kept saying, almost kind of crazy-like, but I kept saying, this same thing happened to me. <laughs> this, this same thing happened to me. Like, I, I this same thing, ha- I said, I remember just saying that repeatedly, like, this same thing happened to me. My mom's a single mom, and I don't know if you're single, but I don't see anyone with you, but the same thing happened to me, and, and, and somebody helped, helped me and, and lifted him up, and, and, and she was ready for me to leave, but <laughs> do you see the point? That which God has done in our life, the rescue that we've experienced by God, propels us to look for opportunities to serve in that same way, to point someone to Christ, to show them God's word, to give them hope, to give them help. And it's going to happen when perhaps we least expect it, but pray that God would show us those opportunities and that we'd be willing to drop what we have and lend a hand. Why? Because you can look at that person and say what I said. This same thing happened to me. Let's pray. Lord, we remember the words that we read from... uh, from Nehemiah (laughs) earlier. We want to leave here with great rejoicing because we've understood the words that were declared to us. Lord, we're thankful that each of us can be like Lazarus. Lord, his name means whom the Lord helped. (laughs) Lord, who among us cannot relate to that statement that the Lord has helped us, the Lord has saved us, the Lord has rescued us, So, Lord, for those of us who know you and love you and seek to walk with you, albeit imperfectly, but want to please you, we look to you right now and we say thank you. Thank you for rescue. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy and help in time of trouble. And, Lord, I can't help but think that a a sermon that focuses this much, a parable, your word, which focuses this much on the torments and anguish of judgment, Lord, would be, perhaps that would be moving in someone's heart right now. Perhaps they would see this and have a fear, not just for their own body, their own skin, what that will feel like, what it's been like to be tortured without, uh, without, without any escape, 
but that that fear would be used by you to give them a fear for God. Lord, that they would look to you and they would realize that uh, they need to have a fear of you, a healthy fear of you, an acknowledgement of you, that you are God and you are holy and they are not and they need your help to, to make them holy. And good news, you have done that for us in Jesus. So I pray, Lord, that you would save souls. I pray that you would draw people unto yourself even now, Lord, even young people, old people, proud people, accomplished people, poor people. Lord, do that as a result of your word today. Lord, let the person not harden their heart to the preaching of your word, but Lord, continue to press, continue to lean. May they not be able to just brush it away like a, like a fly buzzing around their head. But I pray, Lord, that the word of God would take root in their heart and change them and give them hope and help in the gospel. Thank you for your all-sufficient word. Thank you for using people like us to accomplish your goodwill in the saving of others. Use us, we pray. Change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.